0: Hello, and welcome to the So, You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the podcast. I want to give a special shout out to our newest patrons, Paige, Leanne, Maddie, Carrie, and Jonathan. Thank you. If you have found value in the podcast, I'd like to invite you to head over to patreon.com backslash marine biolife to support the show for less than a price of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee. You can help to keep the podcast episodes coming. That's patreon.com/marinebiolife. patreon.com slash marine biolife. Patreon.com marine biolife. Question Why did the boat sink at the dock? Because of peer pressure? My guest today is Jasmine Graham, project coordinator with the Marine Science Laboratory Alliance Center of Excellence, or Marsai LACE, at Moat Marine Laboratory. Growing up, Jasmine knew she wanted to study the ocean, but it wasn't until a college research speed dating meetup that she found the right fit, a lab studying the evolution of hammerhead sharks, or in short, why the heads? Today, Jasmine shares a behind the scenes look of researching in the lab and then making the leap from the lab to the field where she currently studies the critically endangered sawfish. As if being a field researcher wasn't enough, Jasmine is also spearheading the effort to create equality in the marine sciences by forging new partnerships and opportunities for minorities. With the full weight of moat behind her, Jasmine is working towards creating a better world for both wildlife and human life. Please enjoy. Jasmine, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm excited to have you on today.
1: Thanks. I'm excited to be
0: here. All right, you went to uh, College of Charleston, and you already knew that you wanted to be a marine scientist. Why did you choose C of C, and how did you already know that you wanted to be a marine scientist?
1: Well, I spent a lot of time as a kid near the ocean, Um, so my dad loves fishing. He's a big fisherman. Um, He's from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Um, and so my mother was, uh, in the Air Force, so we traveled around a lot, but the one constant was we would always go and hang out at my grandma's house in Myrtle Beach. So me and my dad, wherever we were, we would fly or drive to Myrtle Beach and we would stay there for a couple of weeks, usually in the summer, just to hang out. So spend a lot of time on the coast, um, and fishing with him off of the pier and everything like that. So I really had a a love and a passion for fishing early on because I spent so much time with him. And then I kind of um, took it a little step further. So a lot of people in my family fish um, and eat seafood and things like that, you know, as part of the cultural regional things. And I, you know, I saw that, yeah, fish can be food and all of these things. But then I started getting into, well, what, are, what else do the fish do? Like, they don't just exist to be eaten. What, are they, what else do they do when they're, not, when they're not on our hook? What do they do? Um, so I started asking a lot of questions, uh, many of which my dad didn't know the answer to. So he would tell me to go look it up. That was his favorite <laughs> thing to do. Um, he taught me how to use an encyclopedia, and he would have me write a list of questions that I had um, down on a piece of paper, and we would go to the library at the end of the week or the weekend or whatever, and I would look everything up in the encyclopedia because he'd be like, I don't know. I don't know why it's called that. I don't know why it does that. I don't know where it lives. <laughs> and so I spent a lot of time looking stuff up, and then... The more I learned, the more I got excited about it. And I started being that weirdo that instead of just fishing, I was, you know, examining the fish I had lots of questions. I was running through tide pools, trying to look at things and picking up stuff that made my mom freak out and just like, I don't know if you should be touching that. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Yeah. Um so did a lot of that, and so I was just having a blast, you know, um, looking at ocean animals and things like that. So my parents, they're like, well, she's really excited about this. So my parents are really great, and they always encourage me and and support me in whatever I'm interested in. Most of the things I'm interested in, my parents are not interested in. I don't know where I got any, any of these things from, but um, they heard about a marine science camp. And I was really excited. And I was like, Oh, can I go? Can I go? Can I go? Can I go? (laughs) And um, so they saved up and they sent me to this camp. And um, it was UNCW Marine Quest. Uh, which I think is still a camp that happens I don't know great camp listeners you should check it out (laughs) Um, it's a little pricey but it was it was a good time and so it was at that camp that I figured out that you could do marine science as like a career so that was when I was I think I was 14 Um, so just at the beginning of high school and I went to this camp and I was like, whoa, you mean I can get paid to do this stuff? Like, I would do this for free. You mean someone will pay me to do it? Uh, so I was just super excited. And as soon as I knew that marine biology was a thing, I was like, well, now that I know that that's a career, that's the career I want. So I came back and came back home and I said I wanted to be a marine biologist. And my friend, my friends and family, they were like, I didn't even know that was a thing you could do. Okay, <laughs> uh, so then, of course, my parents being supportive, they were like, "Well, you you should look for colleges that do marine biology." And they got me magazines and stuff. You know, where you have the—I don't know if they still do this. I guess people do it online now, but they have the magazines with all of the schools in it, and you can look by major and everything. No, oh, yeah. And uh, so I circled a bunch of schools. Um, Finally, enough. College of Charleston was not one of the ones I circled. Circled <laughs> oh, a bunch of schools, and I was like, "I want to go. I want to go here." I had a lot, all these schools: California, Florida, North Carolina. Super excited about them. And then um, I actually found College of Charleston accidentally. Um, it was in something else, some other publication. And then my mom was like, oh, hey, look, here's a college. They're doing marine science, look at that. And then I was like, oh, Charleston. I don't know that I want to live in Charleston. I was kind of trying to get out of South Carolina, I think. Um, (laughs) And so I was like, okay, whatever. My mom was like, well, you should just apply, just apply. That was my mom's thing. Like, just apply everywhere, see what happens. Uh, So I put in tons of applications. I put in applications, I think it's seven to 10 schools. Um, And so I got into College of Charleston and I was offered a full ride. So my mom was like, okay, well, obviously you're going to go for free. (laughs) This isn't even a question. (laughs) Um, So I went to College of Charleston, ended up loving it. loving the city of Charleston. It was great. Um, And I think that I ended up exactly where I was supposed to be uh, because I'm kind of an introverted person, um, pretty shy, especially in academic situations. And I, I, well, I don't just think I know for a fact if I would have gone to any of the other schools that I applied to that were like huge, ginormous schools, it would have chewed me up and spit me out. Uh, so going to the small liberal arts college was definitely the way to go. We had a really small marine biology program, um, just a handful of people. All of my professors knew me by name. Um, I really felt seen, uh, which I don't think that I would have gotten at a larger university. Mm-hmm. And I got a lot of experience, research experience, because uh, although College of Charleston does have graduate programs, there's only a master's program and it's really small. And so most of the research is actually done by undergraduate students, which is really different from a lot of the big uh, research institutions where they have PhDs and master's students doing work. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: they really rely heavily on undergrads to do research. So I got involved in research at College of Charleston, did a couple of different things in a couple of different labs. Uh, but I kept coming back to the shark lab and, yeah uh, doing the sharks so,
0: so I want to bring that up because you I read a little bit about you kind know, of how you got into the shark lab and you actually didn't get in right of way so what what's the story behind how you ultimately got involved with studying hammerhead sharks?
1: So I went to reach research matchmaking day that my school put on, which is basically like speed dating, but for (laughs) research labs, it's a really interesting concept. But you go in and all the research labs have tables set up and you walk around and you say, I'm such and such, and I'm majoring this, and I'm interested in this. And do you have a spot in your lab? And you chat. And so I went around the whole research matchmaking day. I went to all of the little marine biology places, the coral, the sea turtles, all of the, like, fun stuff that everybody always wants to study. And I was actually on my way out um, because I hadn't found anyone that was interesting or interested in me. And so I was headed out, and I ran smack dab, literally, into Gavin Naylor. (laughs) Um, And if he listens to this podcast, he's going to chuckle. But, um, (laughs) yeah, so he you know, disheveled, running in late, which I later learned was just his being always slightly disheveled and excited and a little late. Um, (laughs) And so I ran into him and I helped him with his stuff uh, to to his table. And we started chatting and he was showing me all the cool stuff on his website with the CT scanning and the sharks. And he was just so excited. Uh, he's just a very excitable man. He every, everything. He's a great speaker. He's very exciting, engaging. Um, he'll make anyone love sharks. And so I was like, this sounds awesome. You sound awesome. <laughs> um, can I work in your lab? And he was like, yeah, but I don't have any money right now. So I wouldn't be able to pay you. And so I was like, Hmm, well, at this time I was working a part-time job tutoring. And if I was going to work in his lab, I was going to have to not tutor. And so I wasn't okay. going to have that extra income. And so I was like, uh, I don't know. That's like a little, a little tough for me. And so he was like, OK, I understand. I'll take down your information. And I'll let you know if I do come into some money at some time, at some point. And so I gave him my email and, you know, sometimes you give people emails and you're like, you're never going to talk to me again. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was just kind of like, okay, cool. We'll see if he ever says anything. And then the next semester, so this was my very first semester of college, the second semester of college. um, I got an email from him and he said, hey, there's a research experience for undergraduate students. You're at College of Charleston at Fort Johnson Marine Lab. You should apply. And I said, well, actually, another professor had told me about REUs and what they are and stuff. And so I had been looking to, into some other research experiences for undergrads, um, and I had come across that one. And I saw that it was only for juniors and seniors. So I told him that I was like, well, I saw that it was for juniors and seniors, and I'm a freshman. <laughs> and he was like, it's fine, apply. Um, And then I magically got it um, and uh, quote unquote magically. And um, so I got to work in his lab and uh, started doing my hammerhead research as part of this REU experience, which is funded through the National Science Foundation. There's a lot of them kind of all over the place. Great experiences. They're paid positions. You do like 10 week um, intensive full-time research for a summer and they have them all over the United States. They're really great. I did a couple of them. Um, but that was the first one I did and did the hammerhead phylogeny stuff. Got some really cool experience doing CT scans of sharks and, you know, dice, like virtually dissecting them and stuff. And that was really fun. And- so by phy-
0: phylogeny, you mean evolutionary history of hammerheads. Yes. Like, what... what- What were you kind of finding or looking for while you're studying these hammerheads and these CT scans?
1: So the simple answer to that is what's up with the heads. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So there's like these two hypotheses. So like one person or like one lab looked at just the anatomical features. So like the skeleton and you know, how they're shaped and all of this. And they built a phylogeny, which is basically like a family tree of who's related to who, um, except for with their different species instead of different members of your family. And so they, they built a tree and they were like, okay, this is how it works. So the older, the more distant sharks are the ones with um, the small heads. And then the ones that have come into existence um, later, they are the ones with the big heads. And so everyone's been going off of this thing that the hammerheads have their heads for some reason because they've been evolving bigger heads. And so then everyone's been asking the question, well, what's the head for? Like, what does it do? Obviously it does something good if they're evolving it. And um, then there was my... Gavin, who I actually did my research with, he did molecular data. So he actually looked at DNA Mm -hmm. and he built the family tree or the phylogeny based on DNA. And he came up with something that was the opposite, which was like the ones that are older have the bigger heads and the ones that have come into existence more recently have the smaller heads. And so like, if you look at that, that says that the head actually isn't beneficial. It's actually not beneficial and they're (laughs) evolving it away. So you have these two things of like, is the head beneficial? If it is, what's it for? And then the other um, would be, oh, well this is just some random mutation. Like sometimes a a shark was born with like a really big head and it wasn't enough to kill him. Like it wasn't bothersome enough that he couldn't survive. But it wasn't exactly beneficial, so they've been evolving it away. So those are two like very different conclusions that you can come to about the same group of sharks.
0: Yes. Just by examining two different parameters. That's very interesting. Yeah.
1: So I was like, okay, so what's up with this? Why are they so different? And so I was gonna try using the same two methods but more advanced technology. So instead of doing actual physical dissections, I decided that I was going to do CT scanning and do virtual dissections so that the computer would be able to analyze things and we wouldn't have to rely on the naked eye. And then the, for the DNA, instead of looking at one type of DNA, which comes from the nucleus of the cell, uh, which is where most of the DNA is. I looked at what's called mitochondrial DNA, and everyone in high school listening is going to know mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Well, there's also DNA in there. <laughs> Plot twist, um, and that DNA comes from your mother. So only mother. So it's um, it doesn't change as much because there's not as much mixing. It goes just through the mother. So you don't have the dad's DNA getting in there making things weird. Um, so not that dad's DNA is bad, <laughs> but it makes things more complicated. <laughs> so I was looking at just the mitochondrial data. I looked at those two things and I did come up with different results from what those two groups found. Um, but it's kind of like answered a question and then left me with another question where I found out that, okay, they are actually saying the same thing. Um, It's just a matter of where you put the root or who you decide is the oldest. And we can't really figure that out, we've discovered, uh, because the information that we were working with, the assumption that we were going off of for the DNA is incorrect is what i found uh so the next step of that is to change the way that we model our family tree using the data
0: so so what was the assumption that was incorrect then
1: uh the assumption that was incorrect is the speed at which the hammer evolved or de-evolved whichever way you're looking at it
0: (laughs) But you say having the computer analyzing the CT scan and then you examining the mitochondrial instead of the nucleus DNA gave you the same answer? It gave me an
1: answer that was the same except for one piece, which is where the root of the tree is. So if you imagine it's a bunch of branches um, and some of the branches are connected to other branches... And some of the branches are connected to the trunk and um, all of the connections to the branches were exactly the same, but it couldn't tell you where it connected to the trunk. If that makes sense. So that's the
0: big question now, where does it connect? Yeah.
1: Now the big question is where's the root? Where does it all start?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. So Is that lab still researching that question? Yes. So
1: um, we're actually working on trying to get that published soon. We have um, someone basically, so I am not a mathematical model person, but there is someone that is a mathematical model person, and they're rebuilding the model um, so that uh, they can correct that false assumption that we made. Uh, so that they can you they can fix the model so that when we run it again we actually get the real trunk instead of getting like this big question mark of like i don't know
0: (laughs) so what you're saying is math in marine biology is important that's what i'm hearing yes
1: (laughs) unfortunately i'm not super great at math actually uh i rely a lot on um statistical programs so that do it for me so i I had to learn a lot of coding, which I feel like the basics is you either got to be a good coder or you got to be good at math. (laughs) You either got to be able to teach it. You either got to be able to explain to a machine what you want it to calculate it or you need to be able to calculate it yourself. And uh, I would much rather learn how to explain to a machine how to calculate it for me.
0: So speaking of explaining, you kind of had a pivotal experience during your undergrad Um, that made you want to bridge the gap between science and public policy. And it was during a whale necropsy. Could you tell that story? Yeah. So
1: um, I, at this time, was working, volunteering for the Marine Mammal Stranding Network in Charleston while I was at College Mm -hmm. Charleston. And I was volunteering in the necropsy lab, which was an interesting experience. So a necropsy is... Uh, It's like an autopsy. So they do autopsies on people. You do necropsies on animals. So an animal has died and you're trying to figure out why it died. Um, So you cut open dead animals and you look at all of their organs and stuff and you try to figure out, well, what killed this animal? What happened to it? And sometimes it's super obvious. Um, Like it got hit by a boat. Okay, that's obvious. Um, And sometimes it's less obvious. Sometimes marine mammals look perfectly healthy and then they just beach themselves they just swim up on the beach and they don't swim back and they just die and you're like what's up with that so we were doing a necropsy which is by the way as smelly as it sounds um (laughs) especially if you have a marine mammal explode on you because they do trap gases in their body that expand continuously. So if you don't get it in enough time, it will pop. Or or keep it cold enough. Yeah. Yes. Um, Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, It's not great. You've got a really bloated animal and you're like, all right, are you going to pop on me? Please don't. Uh, So (laughs) we're going through and we're doing our procedures. And one of our procedures is that we look at the stomach. So we look at the stomach content for a lot of reasons. One, to see if that had, if they were starving, that's why they died. Or um, two, to see, you know, what are they eating just for, you know, us being nosy researchers, we want to know what they're eating. So we go to cut up the stomach and there is absolutely nothing in the stomach except for a plastic Kroger bag. Um hmm. I guess I shouldn't specifically say Kroger. I don't want to call out Kroger specifically, but that's what it was. Um, it was just, the whole stomach um, was full of this
0: this bag. One bag or just yeah?
1: So so this bag just was so there's so this particular this was a uh, dolphin, and um, oh. so their stomachs are not a whale. Yeah, not that big. <laughs> Uh, so this bag was like taking up most of their stomach. And so it felt full, like to it, it was like, yeah, my stomach's full. I don't need to eat. So it wasn't eating. And, um, so that's basically what caused it to die. It just starved because it didn't know that it was hungry. Cause it didn't feel hungry because it had a stomach full of plastic. And, uh, so that was something where I was like, oh, That's bad. You know, you see like all of the turtles with their heads stuck in the little like six ring soda can things and whatever. And, you know, but I like physically pulled a plastic bag out of a dolphin's stomach and I was just like, well, never using plastic bags again. Um, and I also was like, we got to stop this. This isn't okay. Um, and that's been something that's been big, on, big with me, cutting down plastic. I did my microplastics work as well, which is like little microscopic plastic that gets into filter feeding organisms and goes up the food chain and all this crazy stuff. And so I was like, we, we need to do better. Um, so I was really interested in doing science and policy and outreach so using the science not just so that it stays in the ivory tower just read by other scientists but so the policymakers read it and they act on it and we can start to change the way we exist in the world because we're existing in such a way that's unsustainable um, that's killing a lot of a lot of animals and destroying a lot of ecosystems, unfortunately. And so I am dedicated to my science being something that can be used for policy and also communicating my science with the general public to let them know, you know, these animals are out here. Um, These are the threats that are facing them. A lot of them are man caused and um, we, we're the only ones that can fix it because it's our fault. So um, that's basically been my my big drive for all of my science is that I want it to mean something.
0: Absolutely. I think it's a really important point and something that uh I I also try to communicate as well is you know, science can get caught up in a bubble and you know, you read the headline of a scientific paper and in and it of itself is almost an invitation. You have to be able to want to read something that's like so jargon based and being able to communicate to the, that to the general public is how real change and real lasting change is made so absolutely I love that you're like you have that in mind whenever you create a new science project or do your own research mm-hmm. you graduated College of Charleston did you know right away that you wanted to continue on and do your master's um kind of uh, <laughs> so okay. I yeah, I finished College Charleston,
1: and I was like, cool. Well, I know that I'm going to go to grad school event- eventually. I don't know if I'm going to do it right now. And then again, my mom being my mom was like, just apply, see what happens.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> mom. So
1: I applied um, for a um, fellowship, which is called the Graduate Research Fellowship Program. Which is funded by the National Science Foundation. And it basically funds your entire um, master's degree or three years of your PhD. So it's a three year uh, fellowship. So for three years, all of your research is covered, tuition is covered, and you get a yearly stipend um, that you live off of. And the stipend's pretty generous, more generous than most universities will give you in their stipend package. So I applied and, you know, I had heard about it and people had talked about it and they said, oh, it's really hard to get it, especially when you are coming straight from undergrad and you're applying before you got into grad school. Um, Mm -hmm. So and if you're a master's student, it's harder. So all of these things Mm -hmm. that people were telling me were supposedly strikes against me. And, of course, my mom was like, just apply. <laughs> and so I did. And I talked to Gavin who said that I wanted to do it. Um, and he was like, well, what do you want to go to grad school to do? And I said, well, as much fun as I've had in your lab, I really need to get up, go get out on a boat. And so I want to do something ecology Um, where I'm out studying how animals actually are in the wild um, and not just looking at little fin clip samples and looking at putting, mixing things together to get DNA. Um, Mm -hmm. And so he said, okay, well I have a, a colleague that I know that's at Florida state does ecology, does shark work is a very applied scientist does a lot of science policy stuff. And I was like, great, sounds perfect. So he introduced me to him. And then together we wrote this GRFP proposal. Um, mm-hmm. And I wrote a proposal to do a study on the small tooth sawfish because I was like critically endangered species. Yes. Weird looking animal. Yes. <laughs> so I started with hammerheads. And really quick, I, want,
0: I want to pause. Um, so sawfish are also called carpenter sharks, which I learned recently. I always knew them as sawfish and they're not really a shark. They're a ray. So maybe that's why the carpenter shark is kind of going away and it's just sawfish. Um, but they are like one of the most endangered rays in the entire world. And for listeners that don't know what they look like, it, it's a very descriptive name. Sawfish. It literally has a giant saw as a rostrum or extending out from the tip of its head and then a ray-shaped body with kind of a shark tail. It's a very interesting-looking animal. So anyway, you go back to... (laughs) So why sawfish? Um, Yeah, because they're critically endangered,
1: uh, which is... So when we're talking about endangered, so that basically means at risk of extinction, critically endangered is the last step before you get to extinct. So, you know, you have... Non-threatened, which means, okay, we're not super worried about them. You got threatened, okay, we need to kind of start worrying about them. You got endangered, oh, man, do not pass go, do not collect $200. And then you got critically endangered, which is like, oh, boy, red alert. (laughs) We got to get it together. Uh, So because they're critically endangered and I am so interested in my science Having a policy focus, I was really excited to be able to do science on species like that. It's also listed on the Endangered Species Act in the United States. So there's immediate federal protections um, that are in place, and they're constantly evaluating the status of sawfish, and they need scientific data to do that. And um, Dean, my master's advisor, is actually on the sawfish recovery team. So I was like, boom i to be like right front and center with the policy. So that's why I um, decided to do Sawfish. Um, and so we wrote this proposal up and then I ended up getting it, um, getting the fellowship. And so at that point, I mean, just like all of this goes back to my mom. My mom is a big uh, cheerleader and motivator. And so my mom was like, what? You mean you get to go to school for free? Why would you say no to that? go to school (laughs) and I was like okay mom (laughs) and so then I went to go start my master's degree immediately after undergrad um so I was like yeah I want to go get my master's I don't know if I want to do it right now and then someone was like what if we paid you and I was like I mean I can't refuse that that sounds great
0: Yes, yeah, that would make uh, getting your master's much more palatable. Absolutely, if somebody's like, "Here, you got in. Oh, and you can get in for free, and or you know, we'll give you a little bit of money too." Absolutely. So, what, what specifically were you studying, or are you studying in sawfish? You got, you have a couple of different things that you're looking at with sawfish, and um, where are you finding them?
1: So, I study their movement ecology. So how they move, where they spend time, um, and I do that by um, doing basically tracking devices on them. Um, and there's a couple different kinds that I use. Um, there's satellite, which attached to the outside uh, on their dorsal fin, and um, it'll pop off and it delivers the data of where they've been moving around to a satellite. And then there's acoustic which we actually implant in the sawfish. So we do a small incision, and then we put the tracker inside of them and suture them back up so it doesn't ever come out. Um, And those tags can stay in there indefinitely. And um, the battery lasts 10 years, so we could actually get 10 years of data versus the satellite tag. It's only 60 to 150 days for the tags we're using
0: So really quick, I kind of want to explain acoustic and satellite tagging and why (laughs) um, and the limitations of working underwater. So we all have cell phones, right? Most everybody's got a cell phone and it can talk to a satellite or a tower that talks to satellite very easily. But once you submerge things, water just kind of makes the world deaf. So sending and receiving signals from satellites doesn't happen um, which is why the tag has to pop off and come to the surface in order to send the satellite data and then acoustic tagging requires a receiver so there's actually receivers planted up and down the coastline of Florida I'm learning there's a really big network of them and as an animal swims within a certain parameter of this receiver its tag will ping it and that's how you can keep track of the movements so that's kind of the difference between the two and there's a Sure, a huge price tag difference, too. Where are you finding them mostly? Um, so,
1: so, the small tooth sawfish, historically, um, like before the Industrial Revolution, was found all along the east coast of the United States. So, from Florida up at least as far as North Carolina, there's reports as far as uh, New York, but We aren't as sure about those, um, but definitively up to North (laughs) Carolina with regularity. Um, And then all along the Gulf Coast, as far west as Texas. And it was also and they were also found on the Yucatan Peninsula, you know, where Mexico and all of that is like if you keep going. Mm -hmm. Um, And so wide range. Also, sidebar fun fact: There used to be two species of sawfish in the United States—the large-tooth sawfish and the small-tooth sawfish. The large-tooth sawfish no longer exists in the United States, unfortunately. Um, we still have the small-tooth sawfish, though, obviously. But their range shrank a lot. So basically, now you can only find them, quote unquote, regularly, which isn't regularly at all, um, in South Florida. Uh, which has always been kind of their core um, habitat. But um, basically now Everglades National Park is a protected area. And so they were kind of able to keep um, a stronghold there because they didn't have interference of people. But everywhere else, unfortunately, we kind of were taking them out. So um, they are still, we still fish for them in South Florida. Um, in Everglades National Park, um, in the Florida Bay, around the Florida Keys. Um, there's also a, um, a nursery. So lots of sawfish are born in Charlotte Harbor, which is um, about two and a half, maybe, hours south of Tampa. Um, and so that's another place where we can regularly catch sawfish. Um, but we have found from our movement tags that they're kind of cruising all along the Florida coast. So they're moving as far north as Georgia. Um, and there's a lot of people doing what's called environmental DNA, where they actually take drops of water and they extract the DNA from the water. So everything that's been in the water recently, they can actually... Find the DNA from them. And um, so there's evidence that there's possibly sawfish going further west um, or a little farther north. But from our movement stuff, um, we haven't seen them go any farther north than um, like Brunswick, Georgia, right on the border of Florida and Georgia, and then Mm -hmm. um, near Panama City in the panhandle Mm -hmm. of Florida very cool.
0: I've been going out and doing manta ray surveys with a friend and we pop a drone up and we've seen two sawfish in the last 3 weeks right off the coast here in Stewart, which is really cool.
1: Awesome.
0: The environmental DNA, I just recently learned about this and it is like a whole lot of voodoo <laughs> and very fascinating. That, like you can literally take a drop of water and learn what fit, like what animals were in it without, you know, it doesn't require the use of cameras or tagging devices or like that just that whole concept is amazing to me. Yeah, it's pretty wild. You mentioned earlier, you were actually a tutor, um, and you've been tutoring for a while. Do you you still tutor? I do. Um, Yeah, I love
1: teaching. Um, So I've been a tutor basically since I was in high school. And uh, yeah, so I tutor... I help students prepare for the SAT and ACT. That's a big thing that I do. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I also tutor um, in Spanish. So I have a bachelor's of science in marine biology from the College of Charleston, but I also have a bachelor of arts in Spanish from the College of Charleston. Um, So I also teach uh, online Spanish class um, and I tutor in Spanish. What did,
0: what prompted you to dual major?
1: Um, so I was always interested in Spanish. Um, okay. I'm not always, always is a lie from, (laughs) from middle school onward. I was interested in Spanish. Um, I, so I have a best friend and, um, his family is Dominican and Puerto Rican. And so I spent a lot of time, particularly in high school, with his family and learning some culture and eating a lot of the food and having Spanish all around me and, you know, kind of learning Spanish through osmosis. Um, I had started learning Spanish in middle school, uh, but that was mostly just because we had to. (laughs) We had to sign up for a language and it was that French or Latin Um, And I was like, oh, I cannot do French. French is hard. And then Latin, I was like, whoa, that's a lot of reading of Iliad and all of those things that I don't really want (laughs) to do. So I decided to go for Spanish. And um, so I already had like a baseline um, going into high school. And so I, you know, I had enough language skill that I could talk to people at the parties at his house and I wouldn't be able to say a lot, but I could at least, you know, have a little conversation
0: Mm -hmm. Um, and
1: then I just started falling in love with the culture and the Latin dancing and the music. And I ended up starting a Latin dance club at my high school with my friend. And, um, and then the better at Spanish I got, the more, um, his mom in particular would be like, oh, oh, okay. So you've expressed interest in learning Spanish. My kids aren't very excited about Spanish. I'm going to pass it down to somebody. Um, so (laughs) She would always speak to me in Spanish, and she would tell people at party at the parties, like, Jasmine speaks Spanish. Talk to her in Spanish. Don't talk to her in English. She understands. <laughs> um, and so I was, like, kind of, you know, sink or swim there for a little bit. And yeah. uh, so I was, like, yeah, I've learned a lot of Spanish. Um, not all of it was super formal. So I decided, hey, why not try and uh, major it in college? And it also gave me an excuse to study abroad. Well, I guess not an excuse, but helped me study abroad and be able to apply those classes to a degree. <laughs> so I actually studied abroad twice in college, once in Trujillo, Spain, and uh, once in Medellin, Colombia. Hmm. Um, and both of those were Spanish language focused, fully immersion um, programs. And so I learned kind of, you know, I had learned Caribbean Spanish Mm -hmm. from them. And then I went to Spain and learned Spain Spanish. And then I learned South American, um, Colombian Spanish. And so I kind of had different dialects. And so I got really excited about the dialects. And um, I am a huge nerd and, you know, will learn anything anyone wants to teach me. And so whenever I was learning about all these dialects, I was kind of like, this is wild. And I got interested in linguistics. So they had some linguistics classes offered in the Spanish department. And I actually started taking so many linguistics classes. But one of my professors was like, you should just get a linguistics minor. You're only like two classes away. <laughs> just go for it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I ended up doing those two classes, which actually put me over the threshold to actually get two separate degrees because I guess you need to have a certain number of classes to formally get two bachelor's degrees. Right. So because I took those, those extra two classes, instead of just having a double major, I actually got two bachelor's degrees, which is like a lot. Um, so a little excessive. <laughs> I think I took like 30 more credits than I needed to for a single bachelor's, um, which was enough to bump me up to let me get um, two bachelor's degrees. So I took a lot of classes because I had a lot of AP credits coming into college. And so instead of graduating early, because I was a year ahead, I just spent my last year taking a bunch of classes for funsies. I um, didn't actually take any marine biology classes my entire senior year of college. I just did all of the Spanish and linguistics classes and a random music
0: and film class. And I was just hanging out. <laughs> it's fun it's kind of like your your gap year right yeah exactly
1: I mean my mom was like they're paying you for four years may as well stay (laughs) (laughs) get all the degrees (laughs) there
0: you go go mom yeah why not you get to learn more get a whole new experience take a little break and then then you get to start your master's that worked out really nicely so we totally segued off of the sawfish I (laughs) Really quickly, um, or maybe not really quickly, but what, what are your goals with your research and, or what are you finding and how is that shaping policy right now? Um, so right
1: now, um, I am... Um, <laughs> this question's a little triggering because I'm in the thick of getting getting ready to submit this for publication. So I'm like, oh, I've been thinking about this so much. Um, <laughs> but uh, So we basically... Um, have identified some areas uh, where sawfish are spending a lot of time. And so this is the first step in figuring out uh, where we can deem what's called critical habitat. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've kind of figured out the areas where they spend a lot of time. So the next thing would be to actually look at those areas, find scale and determine what actual habitats the sawfish are using in those areas. Mm -hmm. And then um, what happens is they come in with the policy and they actually designate an area, um, which will be like the, the habitats that they're using frequently. And if there is any connections, which they call movement corridors between Critical areas. So like if a sawfish has to go right through this place to get through there, they also will include that in critical habitat. Uh, and so what happens with critical habitat designation is um, it's actually a legal thing um, that's required for any um, species listed under the Endangered Species Act. And it's basically saying these are the areas that are biologically and geographically important to these animals and are necessary to their survival. And so it offers us very specific protection of those areas by acknowledging this this is an area that is necessary to promote the recovery of this endangered species. Mm -hmm. So it it carries a lot of weight. It's a really big deal. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So this is just kind of the first step in that process. But we're kind of starting to narrow it down. And so the next, my next research uh, project would be focused more in on um, trying to get that fine scale information so that we can eventually get to the point where we're able to designate. Well, not me. I'm not a policymaker. But <laughs> the, the people that make the policies are able to designate critical habitat and making sure that they have all of the information necessary to make that decision.
0: Okay. So you can make the recommendations for the critical habitat for the policymakers to put into place. Yes. Very cool. So how did you become involved with, and this is such a a mouthful and I really like the acronym, but Marine Science Laboratory Alliance Center of Excellence. Is it Marci Lace? Is that the acronym? Marci
1: Lace. All right. Uh, Yes. (laughs) First of all, I'd like to put out there, I did not choose that name. That name was chosen before I was hired. Uh, it is such a mouthful and it's so hard to say. <laughs> um, and I think I spent my first week on the job just trying to memorize the acronym um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I started that in January so I was coming off of my master's degree and um, I actually started the job before I defended. Um, so um,
0: that's great. you get a job and then you graduate. It's always a nice nice feeling to have that. <laughs>
1: Yes, definitely. So I turned in my thesis, and uh, I moved to Sarasota, and then I drove back a month and a half later to go do my actual defense. But um, I started it because um, it's something I'm really passionate about. Mm-hmm. So I I'm really big on leaving the world better than I found it. Yes, and so getting the opportunity to do something that's super meaningful, I am always about it. And so as someone um, that is a Black woman that's gone through marine science, I, you know, I'm very aware of the lack of diversity in marine science. And I've seen a lot of people who started out on my path with me to marine biology that have fallen off for various reasons. And a lot of it to no fault of their own. There were just obstacles that they couldn't overcome. And so whenever I was presented with the chance to work on a project that was geared towards recruiting, supporting, and retaining my, my minority students in marine science, I was like, yes, that's exactly what I want to do. And I tried to do a lot of that when I was in grad school. I was on a lot of, you know, groups, organizations that were su- like, you know, to support minority students in our university and all this stuff. And I started outreach, um, running outreach and doing all these things. And I was super active in the department. I was really trying to make the department a better place, but I couldn't do that really, you know, because I was in the department as a student. It's hard to affect change when you're not in charge. So, mm-hmm. I found that this job was like going to give me permission to just go in and overhaul whole systems. And I was like, yes, this is the power that I have (laughs) wanted. I've been trying to fix things when I didn't have power. Imagine what I could do when I actually have power and I'm actually coordinating this whole thing. And so I applied for the job, got it, moved down, hit the ground running, um, was like, okay, so, you know, they had a blueprint for what they applied for the National Science Foundation funding is very general. And I was like, all right, I have thoughts. And they were like, all of your thoughts? Yes, just go for it. And my supervisor is great. She's just like, if you think we should do it, let's do it. We'll figure it out. (laughs) And so I kind of like took moat by storm, I think. (laughs) Um, and I was like, we're implementing mentor training and we're going to do professional development for all of our interns and we're going to do this and blah, blah, blah. And everyone's like, whoa, (laughs) whoa. (laughs) Um, so that's been really great. Um, and I think that, I mean, I'm probably biased here, but I think that I'm having a real impact, not only on. Um, Moat and how Moat does things, but also how our partner institutions do things and um, just kind of facilitating um, growth and success of all of our students and every student that we come into contact with, even if they're not Marci Lace interns. I broaden the program up to include professional development that's open for everyone. Mm -hmm. So there's like 100 interns that come through Moat every year or more, 100 plus. Um, And so getting to interact with them, getting to help them, that's been really great. Um, Knowing that there's, you know, a significant amount of people that I'm helping achieve their dream of um, getting into marine science is really fulfilling. So I'm very excited about that. And then because apparently that wasn't enough, I had to go like be extra. um, I founded MISS, with three other ladies. Um, and so Miss is minorities in shark sciences. Mm-hmm. And so that's, uh, specifically in shark science. So a little bit narrower focus than Marsai laces. Um, and so that's a program that we started just about a month ago. Um, and it's really taken off. We just started accepting, um, Members, we've got about forty members now. Uh, we opened membership yesterday, so it's it kind of waves of people joining. And um, we are going to do some workshops that will be fully funded. We'll give women of color who haven't had the opportunity to do shark research um, or get out in the field. It'll give them a chance to come do some field work with us on the research vessel that the field school operates, um, get some experience shark tagging, do some professional development.
0: And this is, this is all in your workshops? Yes. Okay. So your workshops are going to be X amount of time and you get to go out on the RV Garvin on this research vessel and actually physically get on hands on professional development and tagging sharks. Is this what... Your membership helps to fund what does being a member mean with Miss Elasmo, which I love the name, by the way.
1: (laughs) Thanks. We took a long time thinking of Miss. It was really hard. We were like, we got to get an acronym that makes sense. Um, So um, all of our activities uh, for the workshop are either donated by field school. So field school is donating the use of their vessel for two weekends um, and okay. so they're not charging us for lodging or food or equipment use or fuel or anything like that. They're donating all of that. Um, and so we just had to raise money for travel for to bring the women to Miami. So we did that mm-hmm. for fundraising. Uh, we basically just were like, hey, this is what we're trying to do. Anyone want to donate? And boy, did people want to donate. So that was good. Um, That's awesome. And so the membership in MISS is totally free. So our big thing is um, it, my, marine science has huge financial barriers. And so we're just trying to mitigate all of those. So being members of scientific societies costs money. Going to conferences costs money. Doing research mm-hmm. a lot of times costs money. Um, and so we're trying to make everything free. So membership to MISS is free. Um, all of the workshops are free. All of our things that we do, uh, we have decided that they're always going to be free. Whatever we need to do, writing grants, asking for donations, we're going to find the money to fund people to do all of these things. We're never going to ask anyone for money um, that's a member of MISS. Um, So that's one of our big goals. So we have an ongoing... um, fundraiser and um, uh, Patreon and everything like that. So we really depend a lot on the generosity of other people, uh, which Mm -hmm. so far has been great. And I hope that that, you know, is sustained and we continue to have a lot of financial support from people. Uh, We also are planning on writing grants and stuff like that, but we eventually will expand and do some outreach with K through 12 and things like that. We have, we're have we in conversations with some partners about doing some projects and things like that. Um, but our first big thing is we're doing these two workshops, the last weekend of March and the first weekend of April. Um, and then we're going to be doing a lot of virtual things because everyone's doing virtual things because there's a pandemic. <laughs> um, but we're going to be doing virtual networking events with our uh, members and trying to get them paired up with mentors and um, things like that, that'll all be virtual for this first year. And then we'll see if we can fundraise some money or get some money elsewhere to do some other programs and things like that.
0: Fantastic. Love the premise behind Miss Elasmo. I think it's really important and really needed. You you founded it with three other women and they all, I mean, all y'all study sharks or rays, but... I will say finding a minority in marine biology is challenging. Do you know of many other of your colleagues that are minorities that are pursuing? I mean, I've had people of color on the podcast, but I think you're the first black woman, which I realized and wanted to change that, obviously. But are there like, is there other networks for marine scientists that of color? So you would think
1: that there would be, right? Um, But uh, no, now there are. Um, So there's, I mean, there's a couple of things that exist. Um, One thing that comes to mind is ASLO, which is the American Society of Limnology and Oceanography. They have a multicultural program, which is okay. um, for minority scientists. Um, there's, I, I'm sure I can think of, so, I mean, L-SAMP, the Louis Stokes Alliance for Minority Participation, that's, like, broadly in STEM. Um, our Center of Excellence is the first marine science-focused program, um, but they're gen- generally for minorities in STEM. Um, so, yeah, with Marseille Lace, part of my job was to look and identify networks, particularly um, networks that other independent marine labs are involved in. And that was hard. <laughs> there are very few connections with um, minority serving institutions and marine labs and all of these things that you think like. Why do these things not exist? Why? And we're all scratching our heads, wondering why there's not a lot of minority participation in marine science. I'm like, you don't have the infrastructure, (laughs) so you're just recruiting a bunch of people, and then they're not supported, and they leave. Um, Mm -hmm. They switch to different fields where they have more support, or at least Mm -hmm. fields that pay better. Um, And so (laughs) I think it's just people are just now starting to realize that have power, I think, I mean, we as minority scientists have realized this and been like, give us some support. (laughs) But the people Mm -hmm. in power are just now starting to, um, in the last couple of years, start to really push for creating these um, different infrastructures. We created MISS, uh, like I said, a month ago. um, Dr. Nikki Trawler-Knowles, she created a yet-to-be-named Uh, group for Black women in marine science. And um, that was started about two weeks after we started MISS, I think. Those are all new things. And I was really surprised by how many women were in that group. We had a Zoom call. There were like 90 people on it. Uh, And we were all like, whoa, who knew there were this many Black women in marine science? (laughs) Where y'all been at? (laughs) So Um, that's a bit, another problem is that we're out here, we just don't get acknowledged. Um, Mm -hmm. and so everyone's like, yeah, there's not a lot of black women in marine science. There's not a lot of Latinas in marine science. There's not a lot of blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's just because everyone that's like on TV and in the newspapers that gets quoted in the articles and all of this stuff, they aren't they don't include us and so Mm -hmm. we kind of aren't seen which is one of the reasons why we made miss Mm because we're like we're out here there are black women and latinas and asian women and everybody in shark science we're here um Mm -hmm. we just don't get seen a lot so if we all start pulling together and amplifying each other um i think a lot of that will turn around i think there's this idea that oh there's not a lot so we don't need to worry about that. We don't need to cater to them. Um, mm. if there's not a lot of them here. And so we're just trying to take up our space. Um, and, you know, recently with the Black Lives Matter movement and stuff, people are starting to do more things and recognize um, us in our in different spaces and stuff like that. Hopefully that's. Mm-hmm. I don't know. (laughs) Hopefully this isn't just like a a random thing that everyone's going to like forget about whenever they can leave their houses and go on with their lives and stuff.
0: it, It feels like it's a shift, like a true shift. It may not have as much momentum in the future just because causes, any cause tends to lose momentum, right? But it does feel like it's a true mentality shift and I have a lot of hope for it.
1: Yeah, I do too. I think that this is this. I mean, this could be that spark of the second wave of mm-hmm. civil rights, and um, which is really exciting. So I'm eager to see how everything unfolds, and definitely people are starting to think about things um, like mm-hmm. diversity and inclusion and making spaces that are welcoming and considering everyone's whole persona. Um, and so I think that things are gonna, um, at least with the, you know, the catalyst of these movements being started, as long as there's someone that's, you know, behind them to keep driving them forward, I think, um, things are going to look good. Like I have a lot of faith in, in Miss and this new black women in marine science. I have a lot of faith in Marseille Lace and what Marseille Lace can do. And um, I think that if we all hold on to our, our um, projects and our passions and keep moving forward, that we will eventually make some change. Um, it'll be slow growing and it'll be hard, obviously, because there's a lot of systemic things that have to be undone. It's definitely not going to be easy. But at least mm-hmm. we're starting to have those conversations more openly um, and at very powerful tables. Yes.
0: Absolutely. And I love on a, on a lighter note, I love the Miss Elasmo, the get to know you, the three truths and a lie are cracking me up. That <laughs> lie. So your two truths were you're a classical opera singer and you've been to every continent, every yeah. continent. I by powers of deduction. Is it because your mom was in the air force and you traveled a lot with her work? No, actually not. <laughs> what? All right. So you have to explain a little bit more. And we are like, we're, we're going over on time, but I do want to hear this.
1: <laughs> um, so I actually had a um, quarter life goal. So I don't do bucket list because I think that sounds morbid a bit de- depressing. Um, okay. <laughs> so I have quarter life goals. So, you know, first quarter goal was to um, visit every continent. And so I was like, by the time... Before I turn 26, so in my first 25 years of life, I want to visit every continent. Um, so actually, my mom, we traveled around a lot in the United States, but my mom actually didn't get stationed overseas at least in the time that I was alive. She did a lot before I was born, but um, mm-hmm. she had been stateside the entire time uh, that I was a kid. And so, The continents came in. So first of all, um, I went to Germany and Austria um, as part of a singing competition in middle school. And um, we had a special honors choir and we went and performed and did hung out and did stuff. Um, So That was the first time that I had actually been out of the country. And that was Mm -hmm. when I got the bug. I think whenever you go and travel, you just want to
0: keep traveling. And it's very addictive. (laughs) You you do get bit by the travel bug. It's real.
1: (laughs) And so I, you know, I came back and I was like, Oh, I want to go see the world. And of course I was a child and my mom was like, well, that's not going to happen right now. (laughs) (laughs) We're not going anywhere. We don't have money for that. Calm down. And so when I went to college, I, was like, ooh, study abroad. I'm definitely going to do that. And so I studied abroad as quickly as I could and um, went to Spain. And while I was in Spain, I traveled around Europe. It did Italy, um, Portugal, uh, England, and then I went to Morocco. So that's where I got Africa. okay. Um, And that was a really great experience. And then I got back and I was like, I'm going to study abroad again. Can I do it again? <laughs> and so then I did Medellin, Colombia. Um, so there's the South America. Yeah. And, um, and then uh, when I graduated college, I decided that I was going to, for my graduation present to myself, I was going to go to Japan. So me and my cousin went to Japan. There's Asia. Um, oh. And then after that, I was like, all right. So we got everything except for Australia and Antarctica. We got to get a little creative here for Antarctica. And so I was coming up on my 25th birthday and I was like, all right, I mean, I got to get it. I got to get it done. I'm about to turn 25. We got to do it. (laughs) So my cousin and I decided to go to Australia and I saved up a lot of money because going to Australia is expensive in and of itself but I also decided that I was going to do a scenic airplane tour of Antarctica while I was in Australia. Mm. So the Antarctica flights company does two days out of the whole year, two days they fly to Antarctica. And so we scheduled our whole Australia trip around one of these two days. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and it was a lot of money and, and, I was like, you know, we're just going for it. We are going for it. This is my last year that I get a chance to do it before I turn 25. And we did the scenic flight. We were around in Australia for two weeks. It was great. Um, And so now I've actually been, I've been to Europe twice, been to Asia once, been to Africa once, been to Australia once, been to Antarctica once. Uh, live in North America and been to South America twice. I went there for a conference last two years ago. Two years ago, I went to Brazil for Sharks International. Um, I mean, and so I have been traveling up a storm and now I need to make my half-year, um, half-life
0: half, year, half, half life, um, list. Half, half century. I don't half like half-life. Half century. Life. Half century. <laughs> Half life sounds very morbid. Again, I like half century.
1: <laughs> half, yeah, my half century goal um, is to go uh, to every national park in the United States.
0: I like this. I like that you were like. Not only am I going to make it a goal. I think a lot of people make goals and they're like, you know, if it happens, cool. But you're like, no, no, no. I said I was going to do it.
1: I'm not yeah, sure do everything it. <laughs> that I say that I'm going to do, I do. Like, unless there is some like, unsurmountable barrier, I'm going to do it. (laughs) I'm very
0: stubborn. That's great. It's a good, good way to be stubborn. (laughs) So as we wrap up here, do you have any advice for the audience? I think that ultimately,
1: you should try and be happy um and that looks very different for a lot of different people for some people happiness is a family for some people happiness is traveling for some people happiness is work for some people happiness is whatever sports whatever um you just got to be happy i mean at the end of the day you're you're responsible for your own happiness and so you really just got to go for it and not put off being happy i think a lot of times, especially in America, we have this like culture of like, oh, well, if I do this and do this and do this and do this, at the end of it, I'll be happy. Like you should be happy on the journey. The journey is the whole is your whole life. You should enjoy the journey. Um, mm-hmm. the destin- if you wait until the destination, it might be too late. Um, and so I think whatever you do to enjoy life, whatever makes you happy, you should do it. Um, so like I do a lot of random things, uh, like I do musical theater and I do lots of different things and, um, not all of them relate to my job and, um, my path kind of meandered a lot and I kind of have my hands in everything and everyone kind of laughs at me because I'm like, they're like, what don't you do Jasmine? why do you do all these, how do you do all these things? And I'm like, cause they <laughs> make me happy. Um my hobbies are collecting hobbies. Uh, I literally <laughs> will see someone tap dancing and say I want to tap dance and then I will go sign up for tap dancing lessons. Why are you tap why are you taking tap dancing lessons? Because it will make me happy. That's why. <laughs> I don't need a reason. My happiness is the reason. Uh so I think that everything that you can do like any time you get the chance to do something that you think will make you happy don't let someone talk you out of it. Um, don't let someone say, well, that's not going to help you meet your goals or that's not whatever. Like, why would you go move there? Like, you're not going to be able to get a job there. Well, if you want to move there, move there. you will figure it out. <laughs> um, right. You want to be happy. Uh, there's a lot of miserable people walking around in the world. And a lot of these miserable people on paper have met their goals. They have the house. They have the car. They're CEOs of the company. And they're unhappy. Um, I'm not a rich person, but I feel rich and, uh, yeah, I work for nonprofits and I study endangered species and I'm not a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, um, because those things wouldn't make me happy. They'd make me rich, but they wouldn't make me happy. Um, so I'm all about, I am pro happiness. And when I was little, people would ask me what I want to be when I grow up and I would say happy. That's what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> and I think I have achieved that. I am very happy.
0: That's awesome. That's a great way. Great advice and a great way to approach life. Cause it is. Life is a journey and, and a ride, and you may as well enjoy it. Cause if not, that's that's the whole point of it. Enjoy the ride. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so You've done a lot of work in the field collecting your data on sawfish, um, and this doesn't have to be sawfish related at all, but what is one of your favorite field story or stories to tell? And I always prefer this this with, it could be like the most amazing day in the field where like everything went right and you caught like 50 sawfish and you saw uh, an eagle ray jump out of the water across the bow of your boat. Or it could be like the worst day and like a hurricane popped up out of nowhere and that was a crazy story and now I'm happy to tell it, but during the time it happened, it was a little insane. Um. So craziest. Amazing oh, day sorry. or worst day, whichever one you want. Favorite field story to tell.
1: Um, I think my favorite field story is, okay. It's my favorite because it's hilarious because it was like Alexander and the no good, very bad day. If you've ever read that book. <laughs> Um, so, it was actually my first time driving the boat when we're fishing. So, um, driving the boat while you're long lining is very difficult um, because you don't want to run over your gear. You want to make it straight. <laughs> you have a specific target that you're trying to lay this gear across and all of that stuff. And um, that's made harder when the conditions are less than ideal. So if it's really windy, there's a lot of waves, it's choppy, there's a strong current, it's real hard. So we have, it's my first day driving the boat while setting the long line gear. So um, my advisor is very much like, uh, I'm going to tell you how to do it and then you're going to do it. Like there, there's not a lot of like And then I'm going to do it and you're going to watch me. And then you're going to do it and I'm going to stand by you while you do it. And then you're going to do it by yourself. No, it's like, I'm going to verbally tell you what to do. And then I'm going to walk to the other side of the boat and start hauling the gear. (laughs) And so I was like, okay, okay, I got this. I know what I'm doing. And um, current was strong. It was windy. It was blowing me over the gear. Uh, all sorts of crazy stuff was happening. I don't remember if this was this day or another day, um, but I think it was on the same trip. Um, my advisor fell off the boat, and it, I had to like circle back and get him. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, um, So all of that was happening, and we have two engines on our boat—one mm. um, starboard and one port on either side of the boat—and um, we got a lemon shark. We're working it up in the back of the boat. And this lemon shark was like the heck with you and bit our steering cable um, for one of our engines. Steering Hydraulic steering fluid is spewing everywhere. It's just like <sighs> everywhere. This shark is like holding on for dear life to this thing. He's like, this, this, cord seems important to you and i'm going to take it out <laughs> and so we finally get him to let go throw him back and dean is duct taping this um the thing cuz it's spewing liquid everywhere and then of course with no steering fluid you can't steer mm-hmm. so now one of the engines that port engine just you cannot steer does not move <laughs> You can turn the wheel and turn the wheel. The other engine will move, but that one won't. And it was stuck in a, in a, a position that wasn't straight. So now I have to steer and haul the rest of this line in and try and keep it straight with the current and the waves and with one of my engines pointing in the opposite direction of where I needed to go. <laughs> and um, it was a mess. And every time I went to go turn the steering wheel, you could see the steering fluid like spewing out of the tape that he had put. And so he's like, Jasmine, whatever you do, try not to steer. And I was like, What? (laughs) What does that even mean? How am I supposed to not steer? Um, It was crazy and madness and wild. And uh, we did finish our fishing and make it back. back to our site our field site in one piece and um so it's one of those stories that like during the time I was super frazzled but then I got back and it's like Dean gives me this look and you know gives me a pat on the back and says we did it Jasmine like you could you could drive the boat through all that you could drive the boat through anything And I was like, thank you for that vote of confidence, Dean. <laughs> it's a trial by it's, fire there.
0: <laughs> it's a great story. What The saying is, uh, smooth seas never made a skilled sailor, right? So exactly. you didn't have smooth seas that day. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Great story. So uh, before we wind up here, I like to leave the audience with a conservation ask or an action item that they can go forth and bring into the world and do. Uh, what is yours for the audience?
1: So I would say, um, so two, I have two. I don't know if that's loud. First one, yeah. <laughs> first one is um, <clears throat> think about what? Um, what you're doing um, and your impacts that you have on the environment. There is a lot of ways that we can mitigate our impact um, on a personal level. Um, Some of them that are very easy to do, even like as a kid. Um, The biggest one is that I think kids specific, although adults buy them too, but um, the Mylar balloons, they're the bane of my existence. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have pulled so many out of the Everglades, so many. Every time I go fishing, I pull at least one out of the middle of the Everglades, which is a protected area home to lots of different endangered species. And yet there are these balloons floating around. And um,
0: and also, the middle of the Everglades is not near anywhere. Yes. So these balloons are traveling miles and miles and miles. So miles and really miles. Difficult. <laughs> like, we have
1: some from Cuba. I can tell they're from Cuba because of the Spanish on the balloons. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so Cuban holidays, like, about a month or so after Cuban holidays, there'll be balloons. Um, wow. Mother's Day, Valentine's Day, all of those holidays, there's, like, at least five or six in the everylades after those holidays. Uh, You can tell someone you love them without giving them a balloon. There are so many other ways to do that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So that's a big one. Uh, Other things are like, you know, reducing your plastic use. Um, Say no to the plastic straws. Um, Bring your own bags to the grocery store. Encourage your parents to bring their own bags to the grocery store. Turn out your electricity when you're not using it. Uh, And then something that's shark uh, specific is um, So if you fish and you happen to be, um, you know, using any sort of gear or whatever, um, ghost gear is a huge problem. Like we catch sharks and they have line wrapped around them that's been there I don't know how long. Um, watch where your fishing line goes. Recycle your monofilament don't leave your crab pots or your nets or whatever, just floating around unattended because animals get trapped in them. And, and then uh, I guess I have one more thing. If you see a sawfish, first of all, congratulations, consider yourself very lucky. They're super rare. Um, I look for them and I only see a couple of year. And um, so, you know, it's a very exciting time, but don't approach them. Don't harass them. Don't If you're diving, don't swim towards them. If you're fishing, don't pull them out of the water. Just um, cut the line as close to the hook as you can get it and um, let them go. Um, they have, I mean, these giant saws on their face that they can swing very quickly. So you don't want to be on the wrong end of that. And it's harmful for them if you stress them out and you're pulling them out of the water. And then lastly, once you do all of that, Call one eight four 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 sawfish to report it uh, because we track sawfish encounters and that goes into our data set um, that allows us to figure out where they are and goes back into that, that whole figuring out critical habitat and stuff like that. So that's one way that you could be a scientist. You can share your data.
0: I love it. Yay, citizen science. <laughs> now, does that number is that number connected with FWC? Yes, it is. Okay. Great, because I know we reported it to FWC, so just making sure. (laughs) Fantastic. So if the audience wants to find you, connect with you, or learn more about you and or Miss Elasmo, where is the best place to do it?
1: Um, So I have a Twitter, uh, which is at Elasmo underscore gal. And Miss Elasmo has a Twitter, which is at Miss underscore Elasmo. We also have an Instagram, same handle, at Miss underscore Elasmo. Um, The um, Miss website is MissElasmo.org. And, uh, yeah, I think that goes through all of my things. Yes.
0: Perfect. (laughs) And I'll put a link to all of that in the show notes if audience just want to click a link and find it. Awesome. Jasmine, this has been so much fun chatting with you. Thank you for being on the podcast today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.